So the story of printing in general, the story of books, is a discipline, a field of its own, bibliography, and the universities have entire departments dedicated to this field, and Hebrew printing or Jewish printing itself is a subfield within bibliography. So I'm going to try in the next 45 minutes or so to give you a very small distilled version um, and it's not a subject I'm particularly expert in, but I know a little bit about. I'm going to give you a very small distilled version of what there are really entire university departments that address this particular subject that we are talking, that we're going to address today, which is the story of Jewish printing. So Jews have always been the people of the book. We're referred to as Am HaSefer, or the people of the book, um, in many places. And because studying and studying books is just what Jews did. The Torah, which is the book, um, in Latin we call it the Bible, because it means the book, um, has always been at the center of Judaism. It's always been our most important book. Um, in the early days of Judaism, we developed the books of Tanakh, the 24 books of Tanakh, of the Hebrew Scriptures, which include, in addition to the five books of the Torah, and another 19 holy books. We, in the past, did a class on Tanakh. So for the first 1,500 years or so of Judaism, there were these books of Hebrew Scriptures. There were a handful of other books that were around, um, not part of the Scriptures. But most of Judaism was found in what we call the oral Torah, was passed on orally from um, generation to generation, from teacher to student, and studied the bulk of the Torah of the teachings of Moses, which was studied orally. And we did a class a few months ago, we did a class dedicated to the oral Torah, explaining how it was transferred from generation to generation, what it consists of, and how it was eventually written down. So beginning, <coughs> excuse me, about the, late uh, the, about the late second century or just around the year 200, <coughs> we began to write down the books of the Oral Torah, first in the book known as the Mishnah, which is a six-volume, 63-booklet um, book um, that has six volumes. Um, later, there were many Mishnaic era books that were written after the Mishnah, and later there were Talmudic era books. We have dozens of books that we still have today from that era. Um, and then after that, by the Middle Ages, there were hundreds if not thousands of books that were written that we have from the Middle Ages. So Jews used books extensively to study, to pray, but for most of history, for, for the first almost 1,500 years after, 1,400 years after the Jews first began to write down the oral Torah, our books were handwritten. Every book had to be handwritten. So if you had a book for it to survive, it would have to be written by hand. Either you would hire a professional copyist. There were people who were writers. That's what they did for a living, scribes. They were professional copyists. You would hire them to write a book. That would be very expensive. It takes time to write books. Um, it could be, you know, take a few months. You're paying a few months worth sal salary for a single book. You know, if you think of today's, imagine if you'd pay someone to work for a few months, tens of thousands of dollars in today's money. Or people would write their own books, would copy books themselves. 
So a student who would go to yeshiva, for example, and wanted to study, wanted to study books of the Mishnah or books of the Talmud or other books, would sit and write down the book themselves. Take an existing book and copy it. Students didn't have money to hire a copyist. They would sit and copy each book themselves. If you wanted to write, have other books of other great scholars that had written books, you would copy it yourself. That's how you had it. Or the wealthy, perhaps, were able to hire others to, to uh, write books for them, and then they could have a library um, or a collection of multiple books, maybe communities, hired people to write books for them um, if they were able to um, do so. So, and that's, the, the, when we have many books that survive, it's surprising so many hundreds, of, a few thousand, I think it is, books that did survive from that period when everything was written by hand. So one of the greatest inventions in history, without a doubt, and um, definitely one of the greatest inventions for Judaism that had an impact on Judaism was printing. So printing is usually dated back to around 1450 or so when Gutenberg printed the famous Gutenberg Bible. Now the exact year and exactly who invented printing itself is hotly debated. There's a lot of evidence that it was around, printing was around before Gutenberg. Um, and before the Gutenberg Bible, but that was definitely the first widely used and widespread use of printing. But from 1450, printing quickly spread across Europe. Many people learned the art of printing, and they were able then at the time, the printing, the plates were, were typeset very, very slowly. It was a very big deal to print anything, Pr printing a book, took months, if not years, to print a single book. You needed a team of people, but you could print thousands of copies. It was a lot cheaper than writing by hand. It was much cheaper and much faster than writing by hand. So printing quickly spread around Europe, and within the next 15 years, hundreds of printing presses were established all across Europe, and hundreds of thousands of books were printed. So almost immediately upon the invention of printing, books began to be printed in Hebrew type for Jews. Books in other languages, in Latin, German, um, Italian, and other languages that were common in the early days of print French, Spanish, the, the early printing, those books were written all in Latin characters. But Jews, very quickly, they began to, they created printing in Hebrew characters, um, built, making Hebrew fonts for printing. It's hard to know the exact years and exact places that the early books were printed because it wasn't until about the 1470s, some 20 years after printing began, that they actually be, they realized that they should put a year and location at the on a title page of printing. So the idea of a title page only was came up about 20 years after printing and only was and it was only adopted slowly. So the first books printed don't have place and year, making them very hard to identify who printed it where and when. Um, so um, the, the earliest Hebrew book that we have is thought to date back to the 1440s, which is before the Gutenberg Bible, which was printed about 1450. Um, the first dated printing book, printed book that we have, 
were um, two books that were printed in Burgos in southern Italy um, in 1475. We have Rashi's commentary on the Torah was printed in 1475, as well as the book called Arba Turim, which is a book of Jewish law, a classic on Jewish law from Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, who lived um, just who had died not long beforehand, uh, but had quickly become a classic kind of book, a code of Jewish law, an early code of Jewish law, uh, once codes of Jewish law became very popular. And uh, so that was, one of, that was one of the first books, that was the first dated books printed. So there were a number of early Jewish printers. Uh, many Jews were involved in Latin and other language printing as well. It was a great business. Um, it did very well. Um, usually printing required investors to um, build printing presses. Jews were involved both in the investing as well as in typesetting and editing and the various skills that a printing house needed. Usually a printing house employed men, many people, many experts. Um, and it was a skill that people learned and studied and apprenticed for. Um, and there were many Jewish printers. So there were a number of Jewish printers that started printing Hebrew books. Hebrew books were very popular. Um, one very notable book uh, family was a fa fellow called Gershon Cincino um, from a town called Cincino in Italy um, who printed dozens of Hebrew, early Hebrew books. And later he and his children and his grandchildren ended up moving to other cities. And they, the Cincino family, were very prominent in printing, in Hebrew printing for the next 100 years, where they operated many printing presses across Italy, um, where, which was really became very quickly the center of printing, um, and other places as well. So printing changed Judaism. It changed scholarship, period. But it changed the way Jews studied and prayed. Until then, for anyone, if you wanted, most people in Europe were not even literate before printing. People didn't have access to books. Only monks and priests had access to books or scholars had access to books. Most people, or aristocrats, most people did not have access to books. Therefore, they weren't literate because they never saw books close up. They never used books close up. People didn't have access to it. Jews were literate, though. Jews were generally literate, but their books were handwritten. So it changed, and now people could get a book. You could, people began to buy Bibles. Christians began to buy Bibles. Now everyone had a family Bible um, that they bought for the family. They could use, they could actually read for the first time. <coughs> Quickly with Reformation, Bibles begin to be printed in different languages too. People could actually read and understand it. It wasn't just in Latin. But for Jews, it changed the way we lived as well. It meant that suddenly books were more available for, for study. A student goes to yeshiva, no longer did you have to handwrite every book of the Talmud that you wanted to study. You were able to purchase a book. It was expensive at first, but it was much, it wasn't tens of thousands, the equivalent six months of, of, of earnings. It was, you know, it was still not cheap, but you could purchase one. Or at least it could be a handful of volumes for the, for the school, for the yeshiva, where people could share books together. Um, and over the years, Printing got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Printers got more and more efficient. So printing got cheaper. It also made it easier to read. The, the typesetting, the, type, the fonts got better and better and better over the years. The typesetting got better and better. The quality of the printing in the paper got better. Books began to last longer. And so pages, printing became cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. It meant that anyone, wherever they were, could study Torah. 
it was really easy to study Torah. You could buy a book, go to the store, go to the bookstore and buy a book. People had easy access. It also meant that authors were able to write their own books and print them. Before that, when someone wrote a book, and people did, and wanted it to be published or spread out publicly, they would have to, it would have to be popular enough for others to want to copy it. And so we have today, we've found thousands of manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts of Torah scholarship of people who wrote books, and they clearly were not popular enough that they survived in great number, but maybe one copy survived or two copies survived. Because, you know, they weren't, in order for something to really survive and to be known, to be handwritten, it has to be really popular that people are going to spend months of writing in order to write the book, in order to copy the book. So only the most popular books ever got published, ever got spread out historically when things were written by hand. Once printing was available, anyone who could convince a printer or maybe to fund this, the printing of their book that it would sell, or anyone who perhaps could fund their own printing of their book could print a book. And so anyone could print books. And they, when they, you could print thousands of copies. They're widely spread. So it allowed anyone to publish. So it made the wealth of knowledge much, much greater from there being maybe a few thousand known books, there were suddenly tens of thousands of known books because anyone could publish. Um, and so we lost many early books of Judaism. We've lost a lot of, well, we have a lot of books. We've lost many books that we know existed and are quoted in different places. We don't have the originals. We've lost them. Even books that we know were popular for a time, we've lost them. We've lost the manuscripts. But once printing came about, even though some books, the early printing book, printed books were also lost, but there's a lot more options, there's a lot more print, printed books. Another big issue that came with handwritten books was that every time you copy a book, you're going to make mistakes. Humans are prone to mistakes. So every two books, every, if you had a multiple copies of a single book, every copy was different. No two copies would be the same. Unless, like the Torah scroll, it is edited and re-edited many times over, as we do with Torah, Torah scrolls. But unless you do that and then read many times over, and as you're reading, you're checking for mistakes, but unless it's, that's done, every book is going to end up having mistakes. And as a result, every book in handwritten days of Judaism, when things were handwritten, every book had errors. And every book had different versions. And when you copied from another book with errors, then that just meant more errors. And so over time, more and more errors crept, cropped up, and it became very hard to edit. And editing handwritten books became an art of itself. And it was very hard to find the perfect version. And we know that scholars then, in medieval times, spent a lot of time finding the right, correct version of the Talmud, how it should be read, because there were multiple different versions, because every copy was different. Printing, when you printed, thousands and thousands of copies are all the exact same. Everyone has the same copy. It means there's a lot mes less mistakes, especially when you're printing thousands of copies. You could afford to have a team of editors to edit and cut out at least as many mistakes as possible. So it meant it, it was able to create um, final uh, uh, official versions 
of books, instead of there being many, many, many different versions. Uh, it was able to create um, standardized versions of classic books like the Talmud. Before printing, there was no standardized version. There were many, many different versions um, with scholars saying this is the correct version, and then later people copying the works of those scholars, correcting the versions, and themselves making mistakes and creating new versions. And so, but with printing, we were then able to um, standardize versions of the Talmud. Perhaps the most noted impact was when it came to prayer. Historically, we Jews pray three times a day. Most Jews did not have a prayer book. Because if you wanted a book, you'd have to write it yourself. There was no sitter. You couldn't walk into shul and open a prayer book because you'd have to write it by yourself. So people learned to pray as children and they memorized the standard, the regular daily prayers, Shabbat prayers, they memorized by heart and they knew the prayers. But they would recite it by heart. Generally, every shul had a prayer book, a handwritten prayer book that the cantor would use. And so he would you know, read out loud and people would hear the way he read the prayer book. Um, for specialized prayers, the high holidays, we have a big, we have a machzer, special prayers that we recite. People didn't know that by heart. So historically, the cantor had a machzer, and he would, the machzer is a prayer book for the high holidays, and the cantor would read it, and everybody else would just listen. Because they didn't have copies of the prayer book. They didn't have it. But once printing began, one of the most popular books to print was the prayer book. Anyone can, and now anyone can buy a prayer book. Now before, prior to, so firstly it made it easier for people to pray, but also prior, because every shul had their own machzer or their own sitter, what happened was each community over the years had a different version of prayer. So while there was a general standard version of prayer, but there were variances from community to community between prayers. And each community over time developed their own customs and their own versions. And each town and each region had their own versions of prayer. But once there was printed books, there became standardized versions of prayer, what we call in Hebrew nusach. They became standardized versions. Today, there's a handful of different standardized versions of prayers, but not too many, because each region or each larger region printed prayer books, and everyone bought the prayer books, and so whatever it said in their machzer, in their handwritten book, they stopped using that. Instead, they used the standardized version. It was a lot easier to read than the handwritten book. And so as a result, prayer versions, the prayer reading, became greatly standardized um, as a result. Everybody over time had the same books, same versions of the prayer book, and everything became standard. What also happened is that mistakes, this is both for prayer and for books of scholarship, mistakes became standardized as well. So when they did make mistakes in printing, then everybody had the same mistake. And they often became standardized. Um, it became easier to correct because then everyone knows that it's a mistake, right? And they would correct, and the next printing you could fix it. But there were, there did become, and sometimes it was debated whether, was this a mistake? Is this the, really the way it should be? And sometimes things became debated whether they were mistakes, but at least mistakes were now standardized. Any questions? So by the early 1500s, remember printing was invented around 1450, so by the early 1500s, Jews had opened printing presses across Italy. Italy had become the center of printing in general, 
and by extension also the center of Hebrew printing for um, printing Jewish scholarship and Jewish prayer books. Now, the one, the largest and most prominent city in Italy at the time was Venice. Venice was then a republic, the Venetian Republic. Venice was a great, great center of trade um, in the 16th century. And it became very quickly, by around 1500, Venice became the European center for printing. And the greatest publishing houses at the time were centered in Venice. Now, there were no Jews. There were Jews in Venice, but Jews in Venice, and there was a lot, sizable Jewish community in Venice, Jews in Venice were greatly persecuted. Venice famously had the first ghetto. In fact, the name ghetto um, is, comes from the Venice ghetto, where Jews were kind of put in one area that was walled off and they weren't allowed to leave at night. Um, Jews were forced to wear um, uh, yellow hats and yellow stars. Um, so Venice was really a place where Jews um, suffered a lot. There were a lot of limits on Jews. And in those days, the Venetian Republic, like, like many governments, became very scared of printing very quickly because printing was a way people could spread anti-government um, things or anti-religious, the religious, um, the Christian, the, the church became very scared of printing. Um, people could print things against the church and spread it very quickly. Before that, anything that you spread had to either be spread verbally by giving a public speech or in writing. Now you could publish something, print thousands of copies and send it everywhere. So it was very dangerous. It led to, it, it's, historians believe, it's a big part of what led to the reformation of the church and, and the, uh, the reformation in the 16th century uh, because you could easily print. So governments were very concerned about printing. Um, they had, um, they required, very quickly, they required licenses to print. You needed to get a license from just about any place you were from the local government in order to print. Um, they also generally had censors um, in every publishing house who would check each thing being printed to make sure that there was nothing anti-Christian, to make sure there was nothing, anti there was nothing against the government, that there wouldn't cause any trouble. So Venice, given that Venice was um, very anti-Semitic, Venice did not allow Jews to print. Jews were not allowed to own pub printing houses in Venice. In 1515, there was a non-Jew called Daniel Bromberg um, who realized that he could make a lot of money by printing Hebrew books in Venice. So he got himself a printing license from the Venetian government and he hired Jews, Jewish typesetters, Jewish editors, to print books. Jews couldn't do it, but non-Jews could do it. He was a non-Jew. And he even got Jewish investors to help, because um, it's expensive to build a printing house, so he, uh, and to print books. And he printed, in 1515, he printed a Torah with a number of classic commentaries, a number of the classic medieval commentaries, Rashi and Ramban and Ibn Ezra, a number of classic commentaries. And he called his book Mikraot Gedolot, or the Great Scripture, um, which became a standard name um, over time for the Torah with commentaries, is now generally since then always called Mikraot Gedolot, Great Scripture. became a standard name as a result. So he prints this book, and um, this book became very, very popular. It was much, much better quality than any of the other prints because Venice at the time was the center of printing. You could get better machines, 
There were great, great, great better skilled typesetters um, and um, print uh, printers in Venice than anywhere else because it was the center. And so he was able to get much better quality at a much cheaper price um, than they could get elsewhere in Italy. And here there was a better, really top quality at, for the time, um, Hebrew book that was published with, you know, well done. And so it, was it sold really, really well. He printed first, he printed it and then reprinted it and reprinted it again and again because it was so popular. Now, he had Jews working on the text because they knew Hebrew and they knew the text and they were able to edit from manuscripts, right? Because they were taking the text from manuscripts. But he did, as a Christian, he had a few Christian ideas to add to it. One idea he decided was to add the Christian chapters and verses. Christians early on added chapters and verses to scripture. Jews never had that. So he decided to add the chapters and verses to scripture. When the Jews bought this wildly popular book, they loved the chapter verse idea. Not because the break in chapter was done very wisely. It wasn't. There's a lot of very strange chapter breaks um, in the, um, that was made in the early days of the Latin Bible um, that were then transferred by Bromberg into the Torah, um, the first co copy of the Torah. Um, but uh, so what it wasn't so, but it was great for referencing. Until then, you want to reference the Torah. You wrote what parsha it's in, but a parsha could have 150 verses. Go find the words in that parsha. It's not easy. Now you can reference chapter and verse. It was so convenient, so convenient that Jews continued using it, and we still use the chapter and verse till today because it's so useful for um, it's so use, useful for referencing. So he, um, this Daniel Bromberg continued printing many, many classic Jewish books. In 1520, he began, five years after he, he printed his first book, he began to print the Talmud, the most important book in Judaism, the most important book of Jewish, uh, uh, um, of the oral Torah. And a very, very large book. It's 37 volumes. It's a huge book, a huge work. And so he began to print the Talmud. It took him three years, again, using Jewish employees um, and Jewish investors, but he was the owner, and so he was able to have a license. Um, and he finished the Talmud in 1523. Now, for the first time, a Jew could purchase a set of Talmud. You didn't have to pay someone a few years to sit and write it or spend a few years writing your set of Talmud yourself. Most Jews didn't even own a set of Talmud. Even scholars didn't own a set of Talmud. Now, a Jew could buy, for a reasonable price, a set of Talmud. It wasn't cheap, but you could buy it. Or you could buy individual volumes of Talmud. were easy to come by. Now, everybody suddenly had access to it. So, he came up with a very, very interesting style when he made his Talmud. He decided to put the text of the Talmud in the center and put... On the inside of the page, see if you have kind of a double page, think of a double page. So the inside of the page, uh, towards the binding, he made on the side, he placed the Rashi's commentary. Rashi is the classical commentary on the Torah and on the, and was already considered the classic commentary on the Torah and the Talmud. Um, he placed the Rashi's commentary on the side closest to the binding. And on the outside, furthest from the binding, he placed, the, he placed the commentary of Tosafot, which is a collection of French and German scholars from the 12th and 13th centuries. And there was also a classic, and he placed that on the outside. 
um, of the Talmud with the words of the Talmud in the center. And that style, it was a kind of creative style of printing, but that style stuck. And that's the way the Talmud was printed ever since, with the, with the Talmud itself in the center and the Rashi, um, the Rashi on the side of the binding and the Tosafot on the side away from the binding, on both sides around the Talmud, kind of with the Talmud in the center. And that became a style. It later was used for printing of other books much later. Um, they used that same style um, with the kind of the base in the center, the, the classic work in the center with commentaries around instead of having commentaries underneath as would be normal for, you know, as the way things are normally printed. And that became the norm for the Talmud, the way the Talmud is still printed till today. He also decided to start each page numbering with, he did page numberings in Hebrew, um, because we do Hebrew numbers, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, which was common to do page numberings then in Hebrew, not to use uh, what we call the Arabic numerals. And, um, but he decided, firstly, he didn't number each page, but he numbered each folio. Folio is kind of each piece of paper, so two-sided, right? So he didn't number each page, he numbered each folio, um, or in Hebrew, daf. And he decided, for some reason, to start the number at two. Bet, right? Aleph is one, bet is two. He decided to start the numbering at two. We don't know why. But as a result, now, what happened is when his Talmud was sold, it became very popular very quickly. A lot of people bought it. And what happened was scholars that would write began to reference the page of the Talmud from his printing, from the Bromberg printing. They referenced the page number. Why? Because until then, you would not reference the Talmud by chapter. Each chapter in the Talmud could be 10, 20, 30 pages. Now go find something in 20, 30 pages. So he would reference the page. He, so he now, there were page numbers that everybody had the same page number because it was a printed book. So they started referencing the page number. It became so common that all subsequent printers used the same page numbers. So they would make sure to start the same, start the word with the same word of the Talmud on that page, end with the same word on each page as Daniel Bromberg had done. So those page numbers that he used exactly as is, starting with number two always, and using kind of the numbering the folios, numbering the papers rather than each side, as is more common, became the standard way the Talmud was printed and has been printed ever since. And we still reference the Talmud by page numbers using those same page numbers from Daniel Bromberg. So it quickly became clear that the Jewish, that Bromberg was so successful, the Jewish book market was huge and very pro profitable, and other printing houses around Italy did not have the quality and the expertise to be able to print the same quality printing as they had in Venice, and definitely not for the same price. The Jews, however, could not open printing houses in Venice. They weren't able to get a license. But many non-Jews wanted a piece of the pie. And often they were able to find Jewish investors who were happy to invest as long as the license was on the non-Jews' name, so there were Jews kind of behind it. So over the coming decades, as the early 1500s, many new Hebrew printing presses were open in Venice eventually driving Bromberg out of, out of business. 
all these new ones came in and they undercut him and they priced their books cheaper and uh, they tried taking his editors and typesetters away. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, Venice was a very, very competitive place. It was a center for a lot of industry at the time. Um, it was one of the great kind of business and trading centers of the day in the, in the, um, in the 16th century. And uh, it was in generally, Venice was known for its cutthroat competition, included in printing. In printing, they were very, very competitive. So in 1545, there was a Christian called Marco Gustinani who opened a Hebrew printing press. And he printed the Talmud along with many other works. Soon after, there was another Italian called Alvis um, Bregadin who opened also a Hebrew printing press. Now, in the 1540s, both Gustinani uh, and Bragadin both decided to print Maimonides' big work, the Mishnah Torah. It's one of the Jewish classics. Maimonides wrote a 14-volume work of Jewish law called Mishnah Torah. It's the most comprehensive and encyclopedic work of Jewish law. And so, and very, very important Jewish work. And so they both printed it at the same time, and they both tried to undercut each other. They both um, stole each other's manuscripts that they were using, and um, they uh, managed to convince local famous rabbis who had written um, commentaries, uh, or lo uh, not local, but um, famous rabbis of the day who, print who had written commentaries on Maimonides to allow them to print it as part of this work, kind of because they each knew the other one was printing, they wanted to outdo each other. And so they both tried to, and so the, the, it got this fight over printing the work of Maimonides, but got really dirty and messy between Gustinani and Brigad. So um, Rav Meir Katzenellenbogen, a rabbi in Padua at the time who was involved in the printing and his work was actually being published by both of them, um, suggested to try to make peace between these two publishing houses, non-Jews, he suggested that they both go to a Beth Din. They go to a Jewish court. Uh, which Beth Din will they choose? They didn't trust the Beth Dins in Venice because oh, the whole Jewish community and non-Jewish community were involved in this big fight between these two printing houses. And so they decided to go to Krakow. Ramosha Israelis, the Ramah, was the most famous Jewish rabbi of his day in Poland. They went to Krakow to resolve this dispute. Anyway, Rav Moshe Israelis attempted to, attempted to find a compromise. He suggested that um, he suggested that Bragadin print first, and then when he finishes selling all of his copies, then Gustinani then print afterwards, and then sell his copies. He tried to make it find find peace between them. Neither side was happy with his compromise, so they both turned to the church. There was an inquisition at the time um, in throughout Italy. And they turned to the church and they both denounced the other side for printing the Talmud. Because the other house, each house had printed, the, each printing house had printed the Talmud. And they said the Talmud is full of blasphemy. Now some years earlier, hundreds of years earlier, the Talmud had been banned in the 13th century. Um, the Talmud had been banned for blasphemy um, in France and Italy. Um, this, and that was handwritten copies of the Talmud. Hundreds of handwritten copies of the Talmud were burned, or thousands, 12 wagon loads were burned, of handwritten copies of the Talmud were burned in the 1200s in France. Um, but now the Inquisition now made it their business to study the Talmud and look at the collected books of Talmud across 
Italy because it's been accused of being blasphemous and other Talmudic-related Jewish works. And in 1553, the Inquisition ruled that the Talmud is blasphemous and all copies of the Talmud in Italy must, all copies of the Talmud in Christian lands must be burnt. So across Italy, they had collected um, books of the Talmud and other Jewish books that had been printed from this huge explosion over the past hundred years of printing. And um, they collected thousands, tens of thousands of books just in the Papal States alone, and they brought them to Rome, and on Rosh Hashanah of the year 1553, they made this massive bonfire in the center of Rome and burned um, all of those Hebrew books, all the books of the Talmud. Um, later that year, about a month later, they did the same in Venice. They collected all the Hebrew books, and they burned all the Hebrew books they could find in Venice as well. Um, so as a result of this tragic story, Hebrew printing was stopped in Venice. It was now illegal, and in much of Italy, Hebrew printing was illegal for some decades afterwards. But Jews still needed books. So Hebrew printing then picked up in other places. In Poland, in Turkey, Hebrew printing presses were opened in Krakow, in Lublin, in Prague, in Constantinople, in Salonika, um, and many other places, many ma major Jewish communities opened Hebrew printing presses to be able to fill the void of the loss of the presses in Italy, which until then was where the vast majority of Hebrew books were being printed. Any questions? Yes, Bill. Um, the Torahs that I have that you read from originally didn't have vowels. The handwritten Torah scroll does not have vowels, but the printed Torahs do have vowels. Before, in other words, the, what we call the Chumash, and before printing, they had handwritten Chumashim with vowels. So the ones we have here in this show, they have the Torah vowels. scrolls don't have vowels, but Chumashim do. No vowels. Not the scroll, no. Any other questions? Yes, Carl. Well, the New Testament was around way back when, from early Christianity. So, okay. Oh, so even before printing. Yeah, it's that's been around. It was around for a long time. It was copied by monks. The monks didn't like printing. They tried banning it because it destroyed their business. The monks didn't like The printing. invention of printing. They worked to ban it in the early years, but they, they couldn't compete. It put them out of work. It put them out of work, yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Liz. So in the 1530s is when Martin Luther got a hold of a lot of Jewish books and wrote all of his anti-Semitic works. So in a way, the fact that these books came out in the general public and Martin Luther had access to it actually was very detrimental because he then spread that throughout Europe. Yes, so I mentioned earlier that printing historians um, credit printing um, for the rise of reformation because people had access to the Bible, people had access to spread their ideas and their comments and their thoughts. Uh, people could easily publish things as Martin Luther did and many other reformists did. Um, so, and anyone could read it um, and it kind of, you know, the church lost its control and the government lost its control of what people said and what people read. 
Um, so that was a big, and it, it led to a lot of anti-Semitism against Jews as well, although there was anti-Semitism from sermons and uh, you know, permitted works before, real handwritten works before that, there was no shortage. But yes, it led to an explosion of anti-Semitism. We can see parallels today with the internet and self-publishing and anybody can Yes, 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 yes. So there's, there's historians that claim that, this is not directly related to our subject, but that every major um, change in printing or in the spread in, in the availability of knowledge has led to revolution and the, you know, the way people interact and um, you know, the way people rule themselves. A little off topic. Um, with old Jews in the, the 15th, 16th century and on, were, were they considered orthodox? And then when did conservatism and reform? Excellent question, excellent question. We did a class um, some time ago that we called um, the, um, I forget now the name, but we did a, I'll have to get back to you on the exact name of the class. Um, um, I think, I know what it was, it was called the Fragmentation of Judaism. Um, and we did a class on that subject, but I will talk about it afterwards. Question, yes. Um, I know in the, the early Christian Bibles that were handwritten, they had a lot of illustrations on them. Um, there's nothing like that in Early Jewish works did include illustrations um, in handwritten works, absolutely. Um, it was a very big part of illustration. And what's interesting is that early printing included a lot of illustrations. Um, and so every printing house, in addition, to, um, um, in addition to typesetters, they would also hire woodcut artists that would make woodcuts for the printing. Um, you know, for art, and there were there was a lot of the early books, especially, have a lot of art in them. Are those in, uh, in museums or places where they can be seen? Well, early books today are widely available online, and they're definitely in museums. Um, a lot of early books, um, and it's interesting because a lot of the study of bibliography is not just the study of the books themselves, but the art um, and woodcuts that somehow move from press to press, and um, you know, fascinating things like that. Um, or the same artist makes multiple woodcuts in different places, or the same woodcuts are used in the same press by, for different books and the like. Um, they reuse stuff a lot. So anyway, it gets very fascinating, but it's a, its own subject. So in the late 16th century, Holland becomes, or the Netherlands, becomes independent from Spain, becomes one of the first republics in Europe, and allows Jews to fr freely settle there. Many crypto-Jews who had forced, been forcibly converted uh, almost 100 years earlier, uh, moved there from Spain. Some were already living there as crypto-Jews in Holland under Spanish rule. Uh, many were in Spain, still moved to Holland, where Holland not only allowed Jews to live there freely, but allowed crypto-Jews that are converted to Christianity to revert back to their open Judaism, which anywhere else in Europe was a death sentence. And so as a result, many of these Spanish Jews, crypto-Jews, were very successful, very wealthy, which is why they had been unable to part with their wealth and why they had converted to start with. Um, and so there was now this very wealthy, um, successful Jewish community in, in the Netherlands and particularly in Amsterdam. And so these Spanish Jews began to print books in Amsterdam. The wealthy community funded much of the printing. Menashe ben Yisrael, the rabbi of the Sephardic community in the early 1600s, himself 
um, owned the printing press and led a printing press. And they managed to build quality of the printing that was nicer and better quality than anything available anywhere else. And so Amsterdam quickly became the dominant place for Hebrew printing. Um, it was, in general, a, a very important printing hub um, throughout the 17th century. Um, and so, but in the 17th century, Amsterdam became really the dominant Hebrew printing hub. Um, and Amsterdam also became synonymous with quality to the point that printing presses elsewhere in Europe throughout in the late 17th century and even into the 18th century would write on the, on the, on the title page, they would write Amsterdam style. Um, similar to the way Latin printed books would write italics. Italics meant Italian printed, right? Because Italian was in the 15th century and 16th century, Italy was the center of printing, it was better quality. So italics was considered a better quality print at the time. So there, Amsterdam was kind of the high quality. So over time, I'm not going to get into details. It's, as I said, there are university departments dedicated to um, Hebrew biblio, bibliography and uh, Hebrew books, and uh, definitely entire sections of libraries and libraries dedicated just to the Hebrew book. So I'm not going to get into the details and the story of, print, of all printing. I'm just going to cover a little bit. Um, some perhaps some important and some fascinating details about Hebrew printing. So um, there were, there did continue over time, there were many printing houses, many, many different places. Um, but in the late 18th century, Poland, which was the largest Jewish community at the time, was divided between the Russian Empire and the Austrian, the, Hamper, ha the Hamburg Empire. And um, the largest, most, most of it ended up in the Russian Empire. The largest Jewish community in the world now found themselves in what was called the Pale of Settlement, a um, small area in the very west of the Russian Empire. So there were, at the time, by the late 18th century, well over a million Jews living there. Um, and uh, by the end of the 19th century, there would be millions of Jews living there. So as a result, many printing presses opened in Russia despite the challenges. Now, although it was the largest Jewish community in the world by far in the 19th century, um, it was also the mo one of the most persecuted Jewish communities in the world. Um, the Russian government was extremely anti-Semitic, and um, Jews in the Pale of Settlement really, really suffered. So um, there were many printing presses opened in Russia despite the challenges the government placed upon them. Um, the most prominent printing press in the late 18th and early 19th century was the Slavita Press. It was founded by Moshe Shapiro, who was a Hasidic rabbi, the son of Rapinchas Shapiro, um, a student of the Baal Shem Tov. And they printed, um, they hired many um, well-known Jewish typists and um, typesetters, and they printed the Talmud in 1807 in what was one of the most beautiful prints until then. Now, they invested a huge amount of money in this printing, hiring dozens and dozens of people for this massive, massive printing of the Talmud. It was a huge investment. They got investments from wealthy Jews, and the Russian community at the time was very poor, but they got investments from wealthy Jews across the Russian Empire. And they were concerned that other people will undercut them and they won't be able to sell their entire print because they wanted to really invest in it. So what they did is they went to many Rus prominent Russian rabbis at the time 
And they said, this is what we're doing. We're printing. They, and they themselves, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro himself was a very well-known rabbi. He said, we're printing this beautiful Talmud. We're investing an enormous sum of money into this print. Um, but we're afraid that other people are then just going to take all the editing that we did and although, you know, they went back to editing from manuscripts and brought in many new manuscripts and um, worked very hard on beautiful typesetting, and they're just going to copy it. And, they'll, and we'll lose our, the copyright didn't exist at the time. And we'll lose our money. And the investors will lose their money. So what the rabbis did is they made a ban, um, a ban, saying that nobody is allowed to print Talmud in the Russian Empire for the next 25 years after this these books are printed, starting in eight, from 1807. And so over the next, their first print was totally sold out. They printed it again, they printed it again, they printed it again. Over the next 25 years, they printed the Talmud four times without any competition. They had, they had, um, they had total, um, total monopoly in Russia itself. Now, it was illegal, I should point out, to import books from outside of the Russian Empire because um, the Russians wanted to control, you know, they wanted to be able to censor everything. They wanted to control um, knowledge. It was illegal, although there was a very, very big bootlegging business. In fact, there were printing presses just over the border of the Russian Empire that were printing books to be distributed in Russia that were smuggled in. So there was a very large number of smuggled books into Russia, but you weren't allowed to officially bring books in. So they had, they, they, did have a, they had a monopoly. In 1834, as they were printing their fourth edition, it was more than 25 years after the 1807 ban had been written, but it was less than 25 years from when they finished the print of the Talmud. The, print of the, Talmud, the first print itself took them a number of years to actually publish it. So it was less than 25 years from when it first came on the market, but more than 25 years from when the ban was written. And so there was another group in a town called Grodno in um, Belarus who wanted to print the Talmud as well. And they began printing the Talmud, and the printers of Slavita said, Ramoshi himself had died, and uh, his sons were now in charge. And uh, they, they, uh, he said, well, 25 years have passed, we're allowed to print. The printers of Grodno claimed. The Slavita printer said, no, you can't print. That's... Um, uh, we, it's not 25 years from when our Talmud was finally, uh, when our Talmud was actually published. We have 25 years from then. And so this big dispute broke out between the two print printing presses. Rabbis across Europe took sides over this big, big dispute. As you can see, printing is a big, it's, uh, there's a lot of money involved, um, and it became over the years often a source of dispute. In the end, both of them ended up printing, um, each getting rabbis to side with them. They both ended up printing very high qualities of quality copies of the Talmud. In 1836, though, two years later, there was a Jew who was working in the printing press in Slavita, and he was found hung, not in the printing press, outside, but he was found outside the town, he was found hung. And they, he was found dead. He was hung. He was on a noose, dead, hanged. So the sons of Moshe Shapiro, who ran the printing press, were arrested and accused of murder. It became clear very quickly they were not responsible for the death. However, the authorities, the Russian authorities, who were very anti-Semitic, and definitely the, um, getting the 
owners of the largest printing press and most prominent printing press in Russia um, was, um, uh, was a big coup for them. They weren't going to let him go so quickly. And so they began investing, investigating claims that they had printed blasphemy against Christianity. They had printed revolutionary things against the government. And so while these two were in prison, they investigated. It started from a murder, uh, from a murder, from a murder accusation. It turned to a blasphemy accusation. And um, there were, had already been a lot of claims against them because of that fight that had broken out two years earlier um, over the Talmud. Um, they were tortured by the Russians and they were eventually exiled to Siberia and their press was closed. Not only was their press closed, but all the Russians banned all Hebrew printing presses across the Russian Empire. So all Hebrew printing presses were closed. The Russians only allowed a single, they knew they had to allow some outlet for printing, so they allowed a single press to continue in Vilna. Vilna was at the time one of the largest Jewish cities. They allowed a single press to continue in Vilna, which belonged to a fellow called Menachem Rom. Rom, Rom, R-O-M-M. So now, by edict of the government, the Rom press now had a monopoly on Hebrew printing. And of course, until then, every printing house had a license and censors, government hired censors sitting in the house, in the printing press, that would approve every single book that went out to print. Now, the government had better control because there's only one printing press. They only needed the censors in one place, which is really what they want. They wanted better control of what was, what was being printed. Of course, as a result, that just increased the bootlegging or the illegal... Um, the illegal printing and illegal um, importing of printing, printed books from outside. But there was a, only a single press was um, now in Vilna. So the Rom press now had a total monopoly in the Russian Empire, by far the largest Jewish community in the world at the time. There were millions of Jews, many great yeshivas, many great Jewish schools at the time, many scholars, so definitely a place where Jews needed books. For the next century, the, Ro the Rom press would become the notable press of the Russian Empire, the most prominent Hebrew press, even as other presses were allowed to open and there were other printing presses, even so the Rom press remained the most prominent press. When Menachem Rom died, his widow and his sons ran the press. It became known as, in Hebrew as Almana Vaachim Rom, or the widow and brothers Rom. So the Rum Press, or in short, Rum, the Rum Press. So the Rum Press, or publishing house, printed books in modern types. They used 19th century technology, which was way, way ahead of what had been available previously, especially with industrialization. Printing became now industrialized. Um, there were big printing factories. Um, and so it became, um, it became great, great. A lot of it became automized. Um, uh, and uh, there were a lot of machines were beginning to be built. Uh, not, they, this is before f real automation that we know, but early industrial automation. And so um, it became easier, cheaper, nicer to print. And so it really contributed to Vilna, which was already one of the large Jewish communities at the time and had many great scholars, to really becoming one of the centers of Jewish scholarship in the 19th century. It had the most prominent and the largest, by far, uh, most prominent Jewish printing press 
was in Vilna, which meant that there were dozens, if that sometimes even hundreds of people employed in this printing press, um, including dozens of scholars, of great scholars, you know, who would edit and um, you know, read manuscripts and type manuscripts and edit, man and edit stuff that were coming out and write, um, you know, write forwards and write. And so they, there were a lot of um, scholars working for, working for this printing press. Perhaps the most famous thing, they printed a number, the Talmud a number of times in the Rum Press. Perhaps the most famous is the Talmud they printed in 1880 to 1886 in what was the nicest edition of the Talmud to date. They hired a very, very large team to work um, on printing this Talmud, dozens and dozens of scholars working full time on printing this Talmud. It took six years. The Talmud became very widely used. The Rom Press continued, they retained the plates, so they continued to publish the same Talmud from the 1880s. For years, they continued to reprint the same Talmud using the same plates, just you know, adjusting it or making small edits. Um, for years, all the way up to the Holocaust, all the way up to World War I, um, they continued to use it. And so this Talmud became the most widely used Talmud and, as I'll soon explain why, is still the Talmud that is used today. So the Rum Press was eventually, in the early 20th century, the Rum family, the grand, who's already great-grandchildren, sold the press. Um, it was um, purchased by various wealthy Jews, kind of went from hand to hand, um, and continued to be the most important Jewish press until it was closed by the Soviets after the Soviet invasion of Lithuania in 1941. It was closed down. And then, of course, what was left of it destroyed in the Holocaust, and um, nothing is left of it today. But one of the challengers that Jewish printers had to deal with um, was most of them were printing in Christian lands. And so until fairly recently, maybe 100 years ago, there were censors in each printing house. Now, the censors were ensuring there was no revolutionary items being printed, very important. Um, revolutionary, any printer who printed anything revolutionary would immediately be shut down and arrested. And this is true from the beginning of printing. But also Christians were very concerned that there should be nothing anti-Christian. So as a result, many parts of classic books were entirely removed. Whole sections of the Talmud were taken out because Christians felt them to be anti-Christian. Now mind you, and people often just describe the Talmud as anti-Christian, mind you, the scholars of the Talmud probably never met a Christian. The Talmud was written in, in um, Babylonia under the Persian Empire, where, well, no, after, in the 400s, so after, a little bit after, but it was in, in Zoroastrian Persia. The people around, the non-Jews around them were all Zoroastrian. There were very few, if any, Christians where they lived. They likely, they knew of Christianity because Rome was Christian and it was a big empire, but they likely never met a Christian. Um, so it's mentioned in passing in a handful of places, but not really discussed anywhere in the time. Um, but nevertheless, they were very, very particular, and anything that they thought, they, that they thought somehow offended Christianity, they would change. Um, and many things that we're talking about, various parts of the Talmud that spoke about various, um, uh, various, um, 
people that left Judaism, people that started their own religions, um, various other heretics, they cut out of the Talmud. Um, in fact, almost every time it said the word min in the Talmud, heretic, they took out the word min. They wouldn't allow them to use the word heretic. And they made them change it to the word uh, Oved Kochavim, idol worshiper, or worshiper of stars. Um, not only that, every time it said the word Goy, which is the Hebrew word for non-Jew, Gentile in Hebrew, um, they took out the word and they changed, or Nachri, which means foreigner, often used to refer to Gentiles, they changed it to, first to um, Ovde Avodazara, servers, worshippers of strange foreign worship, referring to idolaters, and then they thought even foreign worship might refer to Christians also. They didn't want to be included. So they changed it to, um, they changed it to Ovde, Ovde Kochavim, worshippers of stars. Worshippers of stars. So every time it said non-Jew, it it, they changed it to worshippers of stars. And so over time, they made many of these changes, and over time, Jews already kind of knew it. They knew the censorship. So when you see the word Ovid Kochavim, worshipper of stars, in the Talmud, and it's throughout the Talmud, you know that it means non-Jew. But they just wrote worshippers of stars. And there were many, many other, or when it says the word, sometimes it will say it in place for min, heretic, you know, they use the word heretic. Um, um, and many other words that they changed or sections they took out because they felt that somehow it was offensive to Christianity. And so over time, we kind of learned to read through the censorship, read between the lines, and know what it would have said originally. Thankfully, today, what's interesting is that in Muslim lands, they were never censored. Christian lands, they were. So Maimonides can write, write some pretty offensive things about Islam. He lived in a Muslim country. Nobody bothered him. And his works were printed in Muslim countries. Nobody cared. But Christians were very, very self-conscious of what Jews were saying about them. So what they thought Jews were, even what they thought or imagined Jews were saying about them. It led to a huge amount of censorship, some of it very foolish, because sometimes the word goy literally in Hebrew means nation. Sometimes it says, speaks of goy referring to Jews. And the censor, who wasn't usually very smart, would change it to Ovid Kochavim. Worshipper of stars. So even one genius, uh, what we call in we call a Yiddish a cop, a Jewish head, one genius um, in the 19th century convinced the Russian government to allow them to print a book with all the changes that the censor made to the Talmud, so that other printers should know what changes to make. Right? The Yiddish a cop. Yeah. So, any questions? So, starting in the mid 20th century, there was this new brilliant invention called offset or photocopying, where essentially you can take a book, cut the binding, and you can use those pages turn them into plates for printing just by taking pictures of those pages and those pictures then become your plates um, for printing. And so essentially you could take an existing printed work and literally photocopy it and turn it into a high quality print. 
So after, during the World War II, many, most of the Jewish presses in Hebrew presses in Europe were destroyed. Many, many, many books were destroyed. Following World War II, there was a huge lack of books. There weren't that many pre Hebrew presses here in the US. There were some, not a lot. Um, most bo Hebrew books here came from Europe, were imported from Europe, um, same as in Israel, um, which became the two major centers after World War II. And there weren't a lot of printing presses. And printing books is time-consuming, expensive. And so a lot of printing presses cropped up right after the late 1940s and 1950s and said, you know what, let's, they were essentially photostat printing presses or offset printing presses where they basically were not typesetting at all. They would take existing books, copy them onto plates, and use that to print. So what they did is they took the Vilna Talmud, the famous Vilna Talmud, which was the high-quality Talmud printed in the 1880s, and they simply offset it, and they printed exact copies of that Talmud. And they printed thousands of other books from Europe. All you needed was one copy, and you can, using offset, you can print it. So for many years, students, anyone studying the Talmud was studying from a Vilna Talmud. Even though the original plates were long gone, were destroyed, we could study from copies of the Vilna Talmud. Not only that, many other books, especially those printed in Vilna because they were the best quality books, um, were offset. And there were huge numbers of books, or most books that were available in Jewish bookstores were simply Hebrew books, were simply copies of books that had been printed in the late 19th, early 20th century in Europe. They simply offset it and made copies. It was very cheap and very easy. Um, there were new books that were being published, but any older book, you just reprinted. So that became the standards. The Vilna Talmud became the standard. All yeshiva students were just using one Talmud with the exact same format as the Vil formatting as the Vilna Talmud, because it was literally a copy. So this, as a result, almost immortalized the Rum Press. Their books, not only did were their books widely used, but they became the standard format. The formatting and page, page setting of the books became the standard. All books, all Hebrew books that were used in yeshivas by Jewish scholars, by anyone reading, um, were using essentially copies of these books. This really changed only in the last 30 years. About 30 years ago, digital printing was invented. Now, did a little over 30 years ago. Digital printing essentially allowed that just as you can, you can type something on a computer and then you can hit print and, print, and it can print it onto um, plates, right? Because you use plates to print. Um, you, and so it prints it straight onto plates instead of onto paper. And then you can use those plates um, to print. So given the ease with which you can create, and now we even have digital plates, which means you can edit the plates themselves, um, which makes it really easy to print. Um, you can, anything that you have typed up, you can just hit print, it's that easy. Type it, format it, it's very easy to format. You don't have to format word by word, letter by letter, right? Today we have computer programs that can easily format, um, you know, easily adjust the formatting um, across the entire book. And uh, it became extremely easy and extremely cheap to print. Um, as a result, um, there's been an explosion of books in general as a result of digital printing because anyone can print for almost nothing. 
um, and especially um, Jewish books. There's been an explosion of Jewish books. Most older Jewish books that until the late 80s were photostat from earlier prints. Now, could simply all you need is one person to type it. It doesn't take that long. Once it's typed, you can format it easily using a simple program to format. And then you can print it. And, um, and so now we have all these new, newly printed books. In fact, the Talmud has been reprinted many, many times in the last 30 years, newly typed, but always using the same page layout and formatting that they used in the Vilna Talmud, because that's what everyone's used to. That's what we've been using for now over 100 years. So, um, so as a result, there's been a huge availability of Jewish books. Today, Jewish books are widely available. In the last decade, or a little bit more than a decade, there's been a movement to digitalize books. And today, Jewish books are widely, widely available online. Um, Hebrew books, there's a, um, there's a number of websites that have digitalized Hebrew books. Um, there's a book web, there's an organization called HebrewBooks.org that has more than, oh, I think more than 60,000 Hebrew books digitalized. Um, there's dozens of other organizations that have digitalized Hebrew books. Manuscripts have been widely digitalized. Um, today, of course, you can get on your Kindle. You can get many English translations of books. There's been an explosion in English translations. So Jews have always been the people of the book. Books have always been central to Jews and Judaism. <clears throat> it used to be a challenge just getting the books. They weren't easy to get hold of when you had to handwrite them, or there were times it was hard to get books, they were illegal, or um, they were expensive. Today, anyone can get books. It's widely, widely available. Anyone can get books. They're available for free online. There's no excuse not to study. It used to be that in order to study, you needed a huge library of, for research. Today, you could go online. Everything is available online. It's widely available online. There's many, many um, Jewish books and journals and encyclopedias and um, widely, in English too, widely, widely available. And it's up to us to take advantage of that and really, um, and really take advantage of Jewish books and Jewish study um, to maximize our study. It's simply a matter of us putting the time into it. Access is no longer a challenge for anyone. Everyone has unlimited access. It's just a matter of applying ourselves to it. We have more access than any person ever in history ever had to information and to knowledge. Any, each of us at our fingertips, on our cell phone, which is in our pocket, we have greater access to information than anyone in history ever had. We could say we have greater access to information than everyone in history culminatively ever had. And it's just a matter of us accessing that information studying, spending the time studying. Now we have podcasts, allow us to study as well without even looking, right? You can drive and study, you can exercise and study, you don't even have to read. Um, and so that, that's widely available as well. And so all we have to do is just take advantage of it uh, and make the effort to actually study. <laughs>